0: What's up everybody, welcome to another episode of Sandhill Road, the show where I talk to successful startup founders and their investors about the companies that they built and invest in. And The goal, like always, is to give you a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes, how their businesses tick, how they got to where they are today, and to learn from their many successes and mistakes. And My guest today is Sarah Catanzaro from Amplify Partners. Thanks for having me. At Amplify Partners, Sarah invests in technical founders who are solving really difficult data science problems using machine learning, natural language processing, and good old artificial intelligence. And before making her way into venture, Sarah was actually working on such hard data science problems herself, trying to predict the behavior of Somali pirates as a research director at the Center of Advanced Defense Studies, or parsing and classifying thousands of startup funding data points as head of data at Mattermark.
1: So we've built uh, web crawlers to pull in data from over 775 RSS feeds. So we typically have about uh, 10 to 15,000 articles that we pull in every day. And
0: in this session, we'll talk about her journey from being a data scientist to becoming a partner at a fast-growing venture firm. We'll hear about her take on some recent trends in data science, and we'll take a deep dive into some of her most recent investments at Amplify, including the investments in OctoML, Interven Biosciences, and most recently Mace Design. But let's hear it from Sarah herself, and let's dig right in. Today my guest is Sarah Catanzaro from Amplify Partners. Welcome, Sarah. You ready to take it from the top? I am. Thanks for having me. Before I want to begin, we were actually, and I'm dating myself here a little bit, um, but we were actually studying together in Paris back in the mid-2000s at Sciences Po, where I did, of all things, an Erasmus exchange, and you did a independent research stay during your undergrad at Stanford. And then after Stanford, you took a bit of an unusual path towards venture in that you first took an academic position as a research director for the Center of Advanced Defense Studies, where I think you studied, among other things, the behavior of Somali pirates using advanced statistical models. Why don't you take us back to these days? What was Sarah like coming out of college?
1: Uh, yeah. So, so, so I mean, I think one thing that was interesting about that time is that we're kind of peak economic crisis. Initially, I, I was thinking about using statistics to go into investment banking or consulting or finance or something like that. And then the economy fell apart. And so I'm a sophomore, junior in college. I basically thought to myself, what am I really interested in? And for me, uh, having grown up in New York during 9/11, I, I was very interested in counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, and so I thought to myself, like, how can I, in fact, apply these computational methods, these statistical methods, to reduce the fatality of conflict, to to make war less lethal which which is really what brought me to the center for advanced defense studies our research really hinged upon two key questions so so one has to do with kind of the the nature of warfare itself you you want to you know fight an optimal conflict where where you have the best outcome with minimal casualties but but how can you learn about conflict It's not like we're going to engage in more wars so that we can get better at war. Like that, that would make no sense. So simulation ends up playing a rather big part and so one of our goals was to figure out how we could use these models, the, these agent-based simulations, to better understand how to optimize conflict. You know, another key question, which I think I see still today, it is given uncertain information, given incomplete and uncertain information, how do you leverage statistics and, and computational models to kind of extract the most insights when dealing with uncertainty? when dealing with asymmetric warfare, even when dealing with state actors, you're never going to have perfect information. but given the intelligence that you have, you want to make the most out of it. And, and frankly I, I think you know that that sort of problem statement is something that appears both in military science but also in science and investing and all of these other domains.
0: For sure. So you spend some more time in the intelligence industry working later at Palantir. Fast forward to 2014, you joined Mattermark as their head of data. And for the listeners out there, Mattermark is a startup which provides a data platform for venture capitalists.
1: So what is Mattermark? Uh, Mattermark is a deal intelligence platform. It's a private company database that is used primarily by investors.
0: I found this YouTube video of yours where from your Mattermark days, where you explained a little bit about the, the ways that you worked at, at, at Mattermark, including how you scraped the data, how you cleaned it, and classified it, and how you really fed this, this large Mattermark databases. I feel like this, this position at Mattermark was really like the ideal um, preparation for you. Not only did you apply like NLP, ML models, but you also worked on VC funding data. So take us back to these Mattermark days and how this this has really shaped you and and prepared you for your role as as an investor at Amplify.
1: So so I think that there was something really interesting about my, my role at Mattermark. At the time, we weren't the only company, the only platform that was trying to collect information on private companies. In fact, there were others ranging from PitchBook to CrunchBase. Uh, to Bloomberg, but but those other platforms were relying very heavily on human intelligence, whether it was crowdsourced intelligence or having these kind of armies of analysts that could call companies to collect and verify their their data. I, I had a data team that, you know, ranged from five to ten people. Um, and, and so human intelligence in that context w- was not really going to scale. And, and so I had to figure out how can we automate these processes of discovering more about companies. And, and going back to kind of my days at C4ADS, given the information that we have, what other intelligence can we produce? I think one of the challenges that, that I found at, at Mattermark and, and that investors see today is that startup data is just incredibly noisy. You have companies that uh, announce their funding maybe a year after they actually sign a term sheet. You have companies that uh, pivot and therefore have multiple names associated with them. You have to resolve that entity. There are all of these types of challenges that make it really, really hard to take a computational approach to investing. But, you know, I think that that information that we collect and how we synthesize it can in fact inform the other things that we just do as humans, whether it's interacting with founding teams or drawing conclusions based on our own operational experiences. The latter was probably most impactful for me. So at the time that I started Mattermark, there there was no data team, uh, but I lucked out in, in that. In fact, there was an engineer on the engineering team who had a background in ML, and, and together we identified these ways in which we could start to use machine intelligence and automation as a really strategic advantage. So. In the course of my time at Mattermark, we we ended up, in fact, deploying deep learning to production for features ranging from semantic search, NLP to extract key facts from articles and startup funding, to even simpler things like industry classification or business model classification. All of that was automated and this sounds like dreamy and grand, it was really hard. We would have issues associated with our ML pipelines almost every week. The models were were really tough to monitor, very, very challenging to debug. A lot of the kind of model serving and deployment we we needed to figure out on our own. And and so, you know, I think I, as an investor now, can, can in many ways just go out, look at the tools that exist in the world and invest in the platforms and tools that I wish I had back then as a data science lead at Mattermark. Yeah,
0: makes a lot of sense. And so I have worked a lot with venture capital funding data during my PhD. I know how messy it is. But one question I get asked all the time is, how can you use this data to basically predict the outcomes? But the more pessimistic side of this is that you can say it's like pattern matching and fitting like existing biases maybe into the model um, when you use this. But what's your general take on using data to, to sort of guide investments?
1: So, so, so I think the key word that you just used there was using data to guide investments. Given the limitations of, of startup data, I, I, I actually don't think we can automate investing. I don't think you can use data and machine intelligence to pick the right companies. You'll need some mix, some synthesis of human intelligence, uh, data, and machine intelligence and automation. Uh, I think there are ways in which we can use data, for example, to identify industries that are burgeoning or otherwise right for disruption. I think you can use data to perhaps get a sense of what companies are growing very quickly um, in terms of headcount, and perhaps that's a positive signal that you want to pay attention to. But ultimately, the, these insights that you produce, they need to be used in service of some other human decision, and I don't think that you can automate that And end.
0: So moving on, in 2017, you joined Amplify Partners. So Amplify Partners is a relatively young venture firm, having been started in 2012. I think their first fund was uh, $50 million. They raised the second $125 million in 2015, and you're now investing out of the third vintage uh, $200 million fund raised in 2018. The fund thesis is around uh, distributed com- computing, infrastructure, and data analytics companies. And uh, with investments in companies such as Fastly and Datadoc, you have already seen some large exits uh, in, in this vertical, but this is all like press and desk uh, research data that I have. Maybe give us a b- little bit of your personal flavor of, of Amplify.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so I think you got the facts right. Like Amplify is uh, the first investor, an early stage investor in companies in machine intelligence, uh, data management, and distributed Systems. So, so roughly speaking, ML and data science tools and platforms, as well as vertical applications, enterprise infrastructure and developer and designer tools. But, but that's what we do, not necessarily why we do it. And, and I think why we do it comes down to two things uh one is passion the other is need so so i'm at amplify because like i love data science and ml it's what i've been doing throughout my entire career and it's a community that i want to support I don't really care that much about mattress startups. I don't really care that much about uh, underutilized resources and marketplace models. What I really care about is, is is data science and ML. And everybody on the Amplify team is aligned in that. We're we're investing in these areas not just because we think that there is a market opportunity, but because it's what's most interesting to us. And if we're going to be spending a lot of time with founders, we want our passions to be aligned with theirs. Now, the other thing that I mentioned was certainly the the, the need. I think what we saw in the past you know, seven to eight years is that there, there's been kind of a bifurcation in the startup of world between those companies that are focused on, on technical innovation and those companies that are focused on, on business model innovation. So you have companies that are leveraging ML, new approaches to distributed systems uh, to create new product categories in, in kind of the former category. And then you have some companies that are taking existing products, uh, perhaps with a new distribution channel or selling to a new market segment that, that are really more focused on kind of the business model. I think what we realized is that for for technical founders, they they didn't really have a great partner. They, they didn't really have someone who could say, like, don't give me the 30-second elevator pitch. I know there's no way that that you can distill what you're doing into a you know, five-minute demo day presentation. We're going to work with you to kind of help you craft your message. We're going to work with you to help you understand whether you should take a top-down or bottoms-up strategy, how you should think about resolving technical data acquisition debt we, we can focus on the, these challenges that are really specific to, to technical founders and technical products. And, and in that way, I think we, we can kind of fulfill a key need that, that exists in the market as well. So, so that's really what Amplify is about. You know, at the end of the day, we, we are the first partner for, for technical founders.
0: Cool. So it's technical founders solving hard technical problems. If I can summarize it a little bit like this. So, Let's maybe segue into a more general discussion about data science. And I want to kick this off with, with something that you've discussed before, which is the divide between big data and artificial intelligence. And so if we think about the typical artificial intelligence implementation in a, in a corporation today, it typically starts off with an engineering team being hired to sort of create this data lake using probably a Hadoop instance. And then we, we bring in a, a data science team which is meant to implement a machine learning model, training a neural network. And then in the end, this is meant to be productized. But there are a lot of cracks um, along the lines, like, like the data could be, could be messy, the model could be overfitted, or the, the business objective could be ill-defined in the beginning. From your experience, talk, talk to us a little bit about how you um, think about this divide between big data um, and, and artificial intelligence. Absolutely.
1: So, so I think in the age of big data, we kind of recognized that data could be a strategic asset. We didn't necessarily know how it would be a strategic asset, but but organizations came to view data as valuable. And, and, and therefore, we developed a lot of new technologies to collect and store data. So again, this, this is around the time where you have Hadoop, HDFS, um, even things like Spark, So, so again, we can collect data, we we can potentially transform it, and we can store it. Now, fast forward a couple of years, and we have this AI hype cycle. So so now these companies are hiring a bunch of uh, data scientists, uh, research scientists, to build algorithms, to develop neural network models of the data. But but there's a lot that happens in between. So, you know, as you alluded to, there's certainly a data preparation step. But even before that, there's an access and discovery step. And I find within many, if not most companies, that they they don't even necessarily know what data they have, where it is, uh, or how to access it. Once you have some sort of data catalog, data lineage system, the next question again becomes, is this data high quality? I think by now enough VCs and other thought leaders have have kind of uh, broadcast the message that with ML, you have this garbage in, garbage out problem. Mm-hmm. And, and that is very much the case. So, so how do we take the data that we've collected and ensure that it is high quality enough to, to produce a strong output? Now, frankly, my belief is that with higher quality data, we can actually use very simple models to, to get good results. So, so perhaps, you know, in many cases, a uh, 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 linear model will do. You you don't need deep learning. Even as you kind of progress within this journey too, you start to see challenges around feature management, feature engineering, model serving, and and it continues to to persist. Now, one of the things that is just most mind-boggling to me today is, is for those organizations that, that are deploying ML into production, where, where they've solved some of these problems around data access, data discovery, data preparation, feature engineering, it's kind of like the wild, wild west in, in, in production. When we deploy software, we have tests, we are doing monitoring, tracing, uh, logging. We, we have all of these fail safes in the case of ML, we deploy models into production knowing that, you know, the world is dynamic, data will change, and therefore the model will probably expect or behave in unexpected ways, and yet none of that exists. So, so frankly, I think what I hope to see in the next few years is more emphasis on, on monitoring and debugging models and kind of performance management within these production environments. And I think on, on the research side, some of the new work on, on things like interpretable ML is finally enabling this.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great segue into into this interpretable ML. People wanna know what, what's the training data that forms the basis. And, and also, what's the model? And, and only then will they, will, will they trust these models and the outcomes of these models. In particular, with respect to autonomous vehicles and, and, and healthcare, I think it's, it's really interesting. But um, talk to us a little bit more about this interpretable ML.
1: So so I think interpretable ML means different things to different people. And and my hope, again, is that in the next few years, we will start to better understand these definitions and and what interpretability approaches best align to to each definition. So so in some cases, for example, in credit scoring or in uh, making decisions about uh, crime and punishment, What we really care about is fairness guarantees. We want to know that our model is not leveraging protected attributes and therefore not perpetuating social bias. So that's one category of interpretability. How how do I ensure that my model is not using certain attributes? Yet another category is uncertainty estimation. If we have these systems like autonomous vehicles, medical diagnostics that are powered by AI, it, in order to kind of orchestrate human decision-making and machine-driven decision-making, we need to better understand how, how certain the model is in its prediction. So if, for example, I have a diagnostic and it says this person is not responding to a certain cancer treatment, I don't know if the model is highly confident that that is the right answer or if there's just a chance. And without kind of that, that sort of insight, it's really hard for me as a physician to, to act on that information. So, so I think uncertainty estimation is really a critical area of ML research. Yet another area that I think is worthwhile to touch upon since it relates to, to monitoring and debugging is error analysis. So I want to better understand on what subsets of data my model will fail. There are other aspects of interpretability that that we could cover, but I think for, for each of these, we, we really need to kind of think about what is the key question, and, and therefore what is the, the right technical approach?
0: Yeah, for sure. So let's move on maybe to some of your most recent public investments and I want to kick this off with a company called OctoML where Amplify partners participated in the um, 3.9 million seed round which was led by Madrona Venture Partners and I tried to wrap my head around what OctoML is doing. In the description it says, the company aims to automate machine learning optimization with the open source Apache TVM software stack. I wasn't familiar with TVM, so I found this 2018 white paper, if you like, titled TVM an automated end-to-end optimizing uh, compiler for deep learning. TVM is already in production um, by companies such as Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft, and this. This paper came out of the University of Washington, which uh, OctoML is a spin-out of, and one of the authors is also one of the founders, it seems. And so, long story short, my understanding of, of what they're doing is that basically they're bringing machine learning to, to hardware devices, in particular to, to low-power CPUs and mobile GPUs. And this, this is a really highly technical play. Um, maybe talk to us a little bit about what, what they're doing over there in, in uh, layman terms.
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely so, so i guess you know to, to better put AutoML in, in context let, let's go back and think about five six years ago you know everybody acknowledges that nvidia played a very critical role in enabling ai to, to come out of hibernation to come out of its winter this was possible not just because NVIDIA provided GPUs, but because NVIDIA provided CUDA. And I, and I think you know, CUDA is perhaps the unsung hero of the ML world. With, without something like CUDA, it would be very difficult for ML algorithm developers, for, for software developers, to actually interface with the underlying hardware. But the CUDA is for NVIDIA. Now you see all of these new AI chips coming to market. You know, in fact, yesterday I was looking at the ML Perf benchmarks and, and there, there there are just dozens of, of chip manufacturers that, that are now entering the market. But it's not easy to, to kind of marry the, the those new specialized hardware backends with the software itself. What OctoML does, what, what TBM does it really enables you to take any ML model from any framework and deploy it on any hardware backend. And, and this is really critical to, to both the software developers, you know, those that are trying to optimize uh, things like large transformer models, which are really hard to get to work in a memory efficient, uh, low latency way. To you know, the hardware vendors, who want to support new operations, who want to iterate on their hardware platform faster, but you know, don't really have a compiler stack that, that enables that. So, so the, the key takeaway is just with, with OctoML, you can take any model and you can deploy it optimally on any hardware backend. Now, as it relates to, to how I sourced it, I I spend a lot of time looking at the ML research community because, frankly, I think a lot of innovation is started there. And so I actually got to know the, the team at OctoML while they were still at UW. I think from my perspective, I saw all of these opportunities for ML at the edge, Uh, frankly, though I think one of the most exciting AI products is just Alexa, like for the first time my 96 year old grandmother can listen to, to music on demand. And I think there's there, there's a lot more opportunity for AI at the edge, but it's really hard now. And, and so I, I I was really impressed by by how this team at UW was working to enable that this new AI market. You know, fortunately there there's a little bit of like right place, right time. I, I built a relationship with the team through the the UW Research Lab, and they they shared this vision. They they shared kind of the, this. Uh, view about the commercial opportunity and did decide to, to you know, take the plunge.
0: And were they actively raising or were they on your radar and you sort of said if you want to make a company out of this we will look into into this or, or what was it like?
1: Yeah, so, so I, I mean I fundamentally believe that no VC should ever force or, or try to compel a founder to, to start a company. There's someone who is taking on the responsibility of a founder. They, they need to make that decision themselves. So, so the most that I can really do is say, like, I see an opportunity here. If you do too, if, if we're aligned, I, I think Amplify could be a great partner. But, but it is not my role, nor do I think it is my business to convince anybody to start something But before they're ready. Mm-hmm. So with OctoML, frankly, I I knew some of the the team members for nearly two years before we made the investment. Uh, You know, the nice thing about being at a specialized fund where where all I really focus on is ML data science and data management is that I I can play the long game. I can invest in these relationships and and wait for two years if, if that's what.
0: So let's move on to the next investment, Interven Biosciences which is even more complicated. Amplify here participated in the 9.4 million round led by Genoa Ventures with the participation of True Ventures and Boost VC. The company is active in the field of glycoproteomics, and I've learned that um, glycoproteomics is a branch of proteomics, which doesn't make it um, much simpler in the beginning. But proteomics is about cataloging and sort of cate- categorizing proteins. And then glycoomics is about doing the same for carbs. From what I understand, it's it can help with better biomarkers and target discovery. In in a Medium article related to this investment, you mentioned that most companies use AI for biomarker di- discovery, but they are fo- focused on genomics, um, despite the fact that genomics stay relatively stable over the lifetime of individuals. And so my question was in the beginning, really, why is this a data play? But it turns out that an enormous amount of data is required to, to do this analysis, and, and historically it would take a month to comb through this data. But maybe give us more flavor on um, intraven biosciences
1: yeah so, so uh like you mentioned your your genetic code it, it doesn't really change over time so if i'm trying to think about uh diagnostic products that that use genetics you can tell me whether i am at risk for breast cancer but that risk score it, it, it's not really going to change that much in comparison your your proteins they they change in response to the environment and so what that means is that your, your proteins are, in fact, a, a much more relevant both diagnostic and, and prognostic biomarker, which is why Interven Biosciences is, is focused on, on proteomics. They're looking at something called post-translational modifications of proteins. So your proteins, they they undergo a process called glycosylation and by examining this process again, you, you have more insight into how the body is changing over time in response to the environment. Now, Again, it might sound like a lot of science and not much data, but in the past, to kind of examine these glycoproteins, we would use a machine called MassSpec, which the Interven team does use. But you would have to have people look at the output of stack, which you which know, looks kind of like this, this very jagged uh, line chart, and actually like hand quantify each of the peaks. And, and so this could take a really, really long time. So just one of the applications of machine learning within the context of Interven, it is automating this peak picking process with, with computer vision. Like I said, that that is just one way in which the team, though, is actually leveraging machine learning. Another is certainly in the diagnostic context of determining amongst the population who has, uh, in their case, ovarian cancer and who
0: does not. Okay. With respect to this investment, Genoa Ventures is more of a specialized biosciences venture firm. With Boost VC and True Ventures, I was sort of surprised to see them in this round. Where you brought on for the data science piece maybe give us some flavor on how this came about
1: there are very 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 big differences between biotech investors and tech investors both in the way that they think about outcomes in the way that they structure investments even in the way that they behave in the event of an IPO. And frankly, given those differences, I think that in this category of bio IT or tech bio, it's really important to have a syndicate that includes both perspectives. In doing any sort of deal at the intersection of the life sciences and the computational sciences, we're always going to look for an investment partner who has more expertise on, on the biotech side. And, and certainly Genoa is one of the best partners we could ask for in that respect. You know, I think the other thing is that in the case of a tech bio investment, that the way that you mitigate risk is also different. And so while we understand how to mitigate platform risk and technology risk, we're never going to be the best at mitigating biology risk, science risk. And, that's you know just another example of why having these partnerships, these syndicates is, is so critical. Yeah. So what's nice with the Interven Round is we have a diverse set of perspectives and we can provide the founding team with as much guidance on, on you know, how each type of investor thinks about the future of the company so, so that they can make the right choices as they move forward.
0: Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about Another investment of yours, which is one that that is easier to understand, Maze Design, an investment in the design space where you led the two million round, which was announced in early 2020. And so, with companies such as Figma and Vision and Sketch, making design work much more collaborative, we've not seen the same for the testing phase of designs. And this is what Maze Design is really doing. And I've learned that it costs about three to five. Thousand to run usability tests, and what Maze Design is doing is is really um, providing a research platform that makes this much faster and and, and less less cost prohibitive. And the company seems to have a lot of traction with uh, 10,000 users already. Talk to us a little <coughs> bit about how you came how you about this investment and, and what's the mission.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But like, like you mentioned, the, the user testing process right now and the usability research process is incredibly tedious. You, you have designers, product managers, UX researchers who, who may spend hours watching videos. Now the alternative is to release a product, see how the market responds, and, and iterate from there, but but that's really costly too. So so what Maze is enabling is more data-driven approach to to product development and product design, such that companies can iterate earlier in in the design process so so that they can get the benefits of user testing and uh, usability research without the the pain of just sitting there and watching hours and hours of video. Uh, Like like you, I think that seems like a a, a no-brainer too. But you know, I think what, what's really interesting from, from an investment perspective about Maze is what, one of the things that we, we fundamentally believe is that you know, data science, data, it's not just going to change the role and the workflows of, of people who are called data scientists or data analysts or ML developers. Uh, We believe that people in every role should be able to to leverage data and I think in that respect where we're very aligned with the the founders of Maze who who believe that product designers and product managers, they, they need more data, they need more high quality data so that they can make the right decisions.
0: Uh, moving on to to the last investment I want to discuss is a company called Base. They only have a landing page at this point. My understanding is it's a no-code or low-code data analytics platform. What is it that they're building concretely? I think they went through Y Combinator, and you backed them in a in a seed or pre-seed. I'm I'm not sure.
1: What I can say is that. You know, what the Bayes team sees and what we've observed is, is that, frankly, like analysis is not intuition. Uh, analysis is a skill that you have to cultivate over time. It involves you know, a mix of uh, defining research questions and projects, of leveraging statistics, of understanding data visualization. And, and so the idea that anybody should be able to do analysis with the existing tools that they have, like it's it's just false. Um, I, I volunteer for, for a couple of nonprofits doing data science in, in analysis work. And I see time and time again that these organizations are trying to make data-driven decisions, but, but analysis is hard it, it, and they don't have the right tools. And, and that's really where Bayes comes in. You now for someone who does not have a background in data analysis they make it easy to just get the insights. And, and frankly, you know, I, I would suggest that everybody sign up for, for the beta because the experience is just magical. You know, the, the experience of going from a data set to the, this analytical product, uh, it, it, it just, it feels like magic.
0: Sarah, where can people find out more about you? You're on the Twitter and you have the newsletter.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so I do uh, author a weekly newsletter where we highlight interesting research papers, interesting open source projects, and, and other pieces of content. It, it's pretty concise. There are three of each category. And we, we release that week over week. I'm relatively active on Twitter, um, although yeah, relative, <laughs> perhaps not uh, to, to other VCs. <laughs> And if you want to know more about uh, my interests ranging from abstract expressionism to to military science, you you can check out the Amplify website too,
0: which is just amplifypartners.com. Thank you, Sarah, for taking all the time today and and telling us a little bit more about what you're doing over at, at Amplify. And I'm looking forward to follow your journey. Thank you.